Welcome to Teachers in White Coats, a podcast series produced by the educational technology team at Stanford Medicine, where we sit down with doctors, faculty, and other health professionals to hear their stories on the innovative ways they've used education to improve health outcomes. I'm your host, Irfan Majadam, Manager of Academic Tech and Innovation at Stanford Medicine. Our show today will focus on innovative and collaborative ways to teach the subject of anatomy. My guest is a friend and colleague, Dr. Shakti Srivastava. Shakti is a professor and chief of the Division of Clinical Anatomy in the Department of Surgery at Stanford Medicine. He's also an innovator in medical education and led the initial digital medic team focusing on global health education. He's currently working on establishing the Scalpel 2.0 initiative a global academic consortium of VR-based medical education. Welcome to the show, Shakti. Thank you, Erfan, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Let's start with an innovative program that you helped implement just this summer. Your department runs a clinical anatomy summer program for high school students. And this year, because of COVID, you ran the program in virtual reality since the students can't be on campus. Can you tell us how that program worked? Yes. So we have had a program for high school students for several years. It's called the Clinical Anatomy Summer Program. And typically we have somewhere between 50 to 60 students every year for a two-week on-site program. This year, because of the COVID pandemic, we had to convert it into an online program, a remote program. We struggled to convert the on-site program into an online program. Certain things converted very easily such as the didactic portions, the lectures, and so on. But the hands-on skills component was a real challenge. And we've had in the division, and it's been a personal interest of mine for many years to work with educational technologies. And for the last two to three years, we have been working with augmented reality and virtual reality. And it's interesting that the technology has evolved in such a way just in the past few months that VR equipment is now available at relatively low cost compared to what it was even two or three years ago. So the convergence of all of these things uh, sparked the idea in our minds, why not we have a VR component for our CAS program? And within about six short weeks, we converted skills-based components of our on-site program into a VR-based online program. And we had 64 students go through this in late June. And it was wonderful. Uh, We obviously had a number of minor hiccups along the way, but uh, we learned. It was a great learning experience for us, but the students did wonderfully well. The feedback was outstanding, and we look forward to doing it again in the future. So how did you get the headsets to the students? Is that something that they were expected to, to buy themselves? Because that, I imagine, could be a logistical challenge. That is a logistical challenge, and it continues to be. For the CAS summer program, the students pay a tuition for the program And the tuition this year was a reduced tuition because it was an online program. But within that reduced tuition, we did budget for the purchase of one headset for each student. And so we purchased them in bulk from a vendor and then loaded them with whatever we needed to do on our end in terms of software and then shipped them out. It may be a little too early to tell, but based on initial feedback and data, how does the experience compare to the in-person that you had done in previous years? 
Well, overall, the program received excellent feedback on a Likert scale of one to five, where five is the best. I think the average rating for from the participants was about 4.6 in terms of whether they had a positive experience, which is pretty high. Now, that said, we have consistently had a rating along somewhere in that range for the on-site programs as well. And in more open-ended questioning from the student end of the course survey, we did have many students who felt excited about the VR component. They liked the course, but they also felt disappointed that the on-site program was not there and they could not do things really in the lab in a hands-on way. So that's not surprising. I think that was expected in many ways. We have always found that a hybrid experience is often the one that students really rate the highest. So we are approaching fall quarter at the med school. And since you had good feedback from the high school students with the VR experience, are you planning to introduce something similar for the med students since they can't come to campus yet, not in the way that they had in the past? So the fall quarter is a, is a completely new challenge for us. And we are hoping that the students will be on campus in person at least a few sessions, a small part of their educational experience will be in person. It'll not be anywhere close to what it has been in previous years, but it will be a very important and a critical component of their overall experience. So the didactic portions like lectures and so on will be converted into an online Zoom format, but uh, we will have students come in small groups, maintaining social distancing and taking all precautions for safety, and they will have the opportunity to have an in-person lab experience with cadaver material. They will not be dissecting. As you know, Erfan, we are very fortunate that we are one of the few places that has a full dissection standalone course for anatomy, and we feel quite proud of that, and the students have rated that consistently very highly. However, because of the fact that dissection requires participants to work in teams very closely standing next to each other, it just didn't make sense to have a dissection experience this coming fall. So to your question, are we going to add a VR component? We wish we could, but as you said, there are a lot of logistical challenges with the headsets and so on. But more importantly, I think we we don't have the full amount of content that uh, would uh, enable such a experience to be launched at the, at the medical school level. I think for the summer program, we did have sufficient content, but the learning objectives are quite different with that student group. Got it. Let's uh, shift gears a little bit. I mentioned earlier that you're an innovator in medical education, and I've had the chance to sit in on your classes and can see that your students are definitely engaged. How do you keep students engaged in the year 2020? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, anatomy is often thought of as a very dull and drab subject area. Often people will think of it as, as a dead subject, no pun intended. But I think the secret in keeping students engaged is to know your learners and to link the anatomy that you're teaching them to something that they would do later on after the course is over. And they will apply that knowledge in a different context, perhaps in a clinical context maybe as part of a physical exam experience or as part of making a diagnosis with a patient or a treatment. And I think if you can do that, and the vast majority of our students go on to something clinical, but similarly, if you have a student from bioengineering, let's say, and they're going to be applying that knowledge 
in the bioengineering context, then you link the anatomy that you're teaching to something that they might be applying it in the bioengineering world, for example. So I think keeping the knowledge that you are imparting, the teaching that you're doing relevant and contextualize it with what they will be using it for later on in life is, I think, the crucial thing. The, the second thing that I do, if I might add, is to try and use a number of modalities for teaching. So use, obviously, your verbal descriptions, use diagrams, use photographs, use cadaver materials, and then, of course, digital material and resources as well. So that combination of resources really helps keeping students engaged as well. Great. So you've been at Stanford for a number of years now. Can you tell us about your path? How did you end up at Stanford Medicine? That's a very interesting question, and uh, it's a little non-traditional. So I've always been interested in anatomy and in teaching uh, these two things right from medical school. In fact, anatomy was my favorite subject in medical school. And I still remember the very first day in medical school when I joined medical school, the professor welcomed us and said, you're all here to become doctors. And the first thing is to understand the, the definition of the word doctor. And it comes from the original Latin meaning to teach. So you teach your patients, you teach your colleagues, you teach your community. And that stuck with me. And I've always taken every opportunity to be a teacher throughout medical school and in training after that. But the first time I really got to know about the Stanford Anatomy program was towards the end of my surgical training. I was actually doing my fellowship in hand surgery. And, and I heard about this wonderful program for anatomy at Stanford that has had a track record for innovation. Uh, it, it dates back to the 1950s and even earlier than that. And I, that piqued my interest, but it wasn't until a few years after that when I was actually in practice and I had the opportunity to work with a number of patients with spinal cord injury to address their, the tetraplegia they had with uh, difficulties in hand movements and, and upper limb movements. And Stanford has a very successful and a very well-known spinal cord injury service that has worked on this, this uh, clinical challenge with the tetraplegic hand. And uh, that was actually what brought me to Stanford uh, in the very beginning, in fact. And while I was here in that first year, this is 20 plus years ago now, I made my connections with the anatomy program. And several exciting opportunities opened up at that point in time. And, you know, one thing led to another. And as they say, the rest is history. You know, I'm still here 20 plus years later, uh, still as excited as ever, uh, you know, going to work every day. Virtually these days, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know Stanford is very lucky to have you. Well, thank you. I'm lucky to be here. Let's transition to global health and medical education. You led the initial digital medic team, bringing health and medical education to areas of the globe with limited resources. and we actually had a chance to travel together to India as a part of that initiative a few years ago. I also know that you continue to work with numerous universities and medical schools around the world. So what inspires you to want to collaborate globally? That was a great trip, by the way, Arfan, when we went to India together, including all the train rides and everything else that we did. <laughs> the overnight train. I the overnight that. train ride, exactly. <laughs> Catching that uh, you know, midnight train and uh, all the rest, that, the fun stuff that we did, along with all the good work, of course. But to your question, a lot of it has to do, I think, with my own personal experiences growing up. I, I actually had the opportunity to travel and live in many countries, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe. And I had uh, an opportunity for schooling as well in, in many of these locations. 
And these personal experiences, you know, helped shape me in terms of how to relate to people from other backgrounds, other cultures, with different languages and different practices. And I've always been struck by how how similar we all are once you put some of the more superficial differences aside. And I've really enjoyed building these relationships. I found wonderful people in all locations, wherever I have traveled and lived. It's been my attempt to try and build meaningful relationships and keep those alive even after I've left those locations. So that's sort of a little bit about my own background and my personality. And I think that that certainly overflowed into this idea of building these bridges with medical education. And I think the, the bridge that technology enables is just so meaningful in trying to nurture those relationships. And health and education are the two things that come together in my work area. And so that's really the genesis and the background for trying to do any of these programs that have a global health and medical education component. So do you think that resource-rich institutions like Stanford can help fill the gaps in medical schools in areas of the world that lack resources? Is this something that more medical schools should be doing? I think, you know, the small answer is yes, but the bigger answer is that I think we can all help each other. That's really where the true success will, will come. If we all align our efforts, I think there is plenty to learn from each other. It's not only the Stanfords that can teach institutions in other locations, but I think I have learned a whole lot of wonderful things by these collaborations. And I think that that bi-directional exchange of knowledge and sharing of experiences is really where I think the real gains are to be had. And how do you handle potential either cultural or language barriers that may arise when you do collaborate with these different institutions? A little bit of that has to do with my own personal background and my own sort of experiences that I've had. And I found that if you've traveled to any of these locations, being able to have that shared experience is something that really helps build those relationships. So that's the sort of the foundation. But beyond that, I think just being aware of these cultural differences and being accepting of them and to be respectful of any cultural differences that may arise, I think is really the way to have these sort of be out of the way. Uh, You know, they don't become barriers. They sometimes enrich the experience, in fact. And I think that that's the crucial way of looking at these rather than as barriers, try to see how can you actually enrich the experience because of these differences. What's one piece of advice that you can share with instructors on teaching anatomy to either students at their own institutions or globally? That's a great question. Well, from my point of view, I think the most fundamental and I think the most important advice that I can share for instructors is to know your learners. I think a lot of instructors end up making the mistake where they do what they're planning to do regardless of what the students' needs are or where the students are in their learning curve. And I think it's very important for instructors to be able to factor that in as they go about teaching. And then to be flexible in terms of how they go about teaching. To some extent, you're fixed with a particular curriculum, but I think there are flexible ways in which you can approach it, even in real time. And I think just being nimble with the way you teach a particular point and you try to get it across to the students really makes all the difference. 
Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Shakti. I look forward to following your Scalpel 2.0 initiative. Thank you, Arfan. Real pleasure talking with you and thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teachers in White Coats. If you're enjoying our show, please like, rate, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. My name is Erfan Majadam. See you next time.